Welcome to the Consulting Pipeline Podcast. I was able recently to speak with Michael Ryan about his journey from, well, when he started out in manufacturing, it was um, in the world of process control. And he cultivated a really specific, really interesting expertise in inventory optimization. Michael was generous enough to come on the show and talk about how he got to where he is today. And I think you're going to enjoy the heck out of this conversation. I sure did. Well, Michael Ryan, welcome to the show. Glad to have you here. Thank you, Philip, for the opportunity to be on your show. So why don't I... uh, you know, put put things on you and say, why don't you explain why you're here? <laughs> you and I got into an email conversation a ways back, and and that resulted in you being here. But today, who are you and what do you do? So today, well, I'm still Michael Ryan, yeah. And uh, what I do is I work with specialty manufacturers whose customers are spitting mad because the right inventory is not in place. That's so juicy. What is a specialty manufacturer? Specialty manufacturers are niche in their industries. They provide either a, uh, a specialized part or a specialized material um, to their customers. It's mostly B2B, so businesses that produce things for other businesses, whether they're pieces and parts or um, finished goods for resale. So many questions. What makes somebody spitting mad about inventory? I I can guess, but I'd like to hear from the expert. Like, what causes that to happen? So, in many cases, Philip, it's a manufacturer is out of stock on something they should never be out of stock on. Or it's something that the the customer, I'll say, telegraphed the need for, mm-hmm. and the manufacturer failed to produce. That That's generally what makes the customers mad. Okay. I'm going to be uh, the dumbest guy in the room here for a minute. Uh, or maybe I actually am the dumbest guy in the room. No, I but doubt that. <laughs> here's my question. Um, computers are supposed to fix all this. Like, how in this day and age could that possibly happen? So, that is a wonderful question. And... A lot of times I hear, especially in initial conversations, my system is broken, my system doesn't work, and typically it's not the system. It's Mm -hmm. the people and the process around the system um, that are not enabling the system to do its job. Interesting. I've been writing to my email list recently about second-order consequences of software, which I think is something that consultants really need to uh, care about. Is, is, this, is that, this that kind of thing, like a second-order consequence, like the system is hard to use, so we just don't use it, and therefore we get into these situations where uh, people are mad at each other, or does it happen for some other reason? Um, so in some cases, it is a second-order where the system is difficult to use. Um, in other cases, and, and I'd say the most common that I run into is um, – the folks in the business either are not using the system as intended or they're just not using the system. Mm-hmm. So, so why does that happen if it's not like a usability thing or are there common causes or patterns that you see? Um, the common cause 
I see a lot of is people not understanding the importance of what happens next. So hmm. uh, somebody doesn't enter an inventory transaction or they don't enter uh, production. Mm-hmm. That, that's a very common one where production doesn't get reported. Right. And they say, oh, I'll do it later. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it at the end of the week. And what they may not realize is by not reporting production, the system isn't relieving inventory or generating a signal to say, hey, buy more. Mm-hmm. So for what may be a simple act of not reporting production, everything grinds to a halt. And then, you know, a day later, a week later, they go to reach for that, for that part, for that component, and it's not there. So let's backtrack a bit and talk about how you got to where you are today with this uh, relatively specialized focus. So what's your background? So my background is I am a ceramic engineer by training. That is so cool. (laughs) (laughs) And I started out in, um, I will say, the most traditional of ceramic industries, manufacturing sinks and toilets. But that's, that's I mean, that that's perhaps what we all first think of when we think of ceramics or maybe dinnerware. But, I mean, did, did you get into other aspects of that or is that, um, did you specialize in sinks and toilets? Um, I, I, it was something that, you know, I... I went to school for uh-huh. uh, Alfred university upstate New York. And there are definitely many branches inside of ceramic engineering. There's electrical ceramics, there's glass. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for me, I liked traditional ceramics because it was very hands on. Yeah. Uh, it was something where um, I could point to something to say, Hey, you know, this is a result of my effort and I had something to show for it. So, so that's why I like traditional ceramic ceramic manufacturing and and ultimately that's how uh that's where i went right out of school so what happened next was that like a steady career path for you or were there twists and turns along the way uh yeah there were some twists and turns you know i i had gone to work for one um i'll say nameplate manufacturer for a couple of years Mm -hmm. and um (laughs) i got a phone call one afternoon at work I uh, went to check my voicemail and it, it comes up as a, a 920 area code and I have no idea what that is. So I call it and uh, it turns out it was the business's number one competitor. It would be like Coke calling Pepsi or Burger King calling McDonald's. So okay. <laughs> I, I panicked and hung up the phone and, uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I, I went home early that afternoon and, and uh, they had heard about my the results that I had created for this business and they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So, um, I went to work for that business mm-hmm. and, um, after a couple of years, I wanted to do more. Um, I wanted to get involved in other aspects outside of manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And, um, that industry at that time was very siloed. And I said, no, you work in the pottery, you stay in the pottery. Mm-hmm. And I said, Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, at, at that point, I, I went from manufacturing a product everybody needs um, to a product that everybody wants and, and went to uh, a GE Superbrasives, a division of General Electric that made industrial diamond. Mm-hmm. So I went from making toilets to making diamond. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, 
and and in that role, it was um, all about continuous improvement. Okay, um, that's where I, I earned my Six Sigma black belt, and and really understood and and lived and breathed the idea of, hey, let's make stuff better. Right. I want to circle back just a bit. Um, you got essentially headhunted by the competition because of some something that they found, like some moving the needle, I guess, for your previous employer. I mean, what, what did that look like? That's, that's the theme that I'm always trying to explore is, especially for software folks, they do things that move the needle all the time, but sometimes they're not aware of the, you know, the, the context that the software they're building fits into. So I'm curious to hear more about that. Um, yeah. It, in, how I got headhunted was um, through a vendor that supplied both businesses. So, mm-hmm. um, and I had come to find out after the fact that um, you know, this one vendor was impressed uh, with what I had done inside the business. Mm-hmm. And I guess they were talking with me about the, uh, you know, the improvements with the competitor and, it was the vendor between the two businesses that connected the dots. So um, someone who through, I'll say no, um, you know, active measures, you know, I didn't set out to impress any vendors. It was just like developed a rapport. And um, I guess they thought enough of the work I had done to share my name. They became an accidental headhunter. I, I, I'm being super nosy, Michael, but um, like, it was this like some kind of a process improvement in the manufacturing process, or like what ultimately was so impressive? Uh, it was process improvement. So okay. the the it's called pressure casting, uh-huh. and instead of using a plaster mold to wick out the water, it's forced out under pressure. And at mm-hmm. that time, um, the one business I was working for. You know, they had been doing it for a decade and were very, very good at it. And I figured out a couple of ways to help make it better. And, um, you know, that in combination with that specialized expertise is, is what got me uh, approached and poached. Okay. This is like becoming actually more interesting to me the more you tell <laughs> me about it. Because another one of the themes that I'm very interested in is uh, self-made expertise. And it sounds like this is an example of that where you were trying to make things better there. there, I mean, were you, I don't have to be careful about how I say this. Like, was this just something everybody else knew how to do and you brought it to this company or was this more like an innovation that you created? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think it was building on the knowledge and making it just a little bit better. Um, you know, I, I like to think that I was was innovative, but I think it was more, um, I'd say, more about the expertise and the experience I had um, that would help this other business, which was probably five years behind, um, you know, make a step function change in, in their output. Okay. Um I believe you. And also I feel like maybe you're downplaying a little bit your role there. So walk me through it. Um, you know, our, our audience here is fantastically intelligent people. So there'll probably be some, 
you know, kind of inside baseball about the world of ceramics, they don't know, but they'll, they can follow along. So walk me through, like, how did you create this improvement, like this, um, you know, thing that may or may not be an innovation? Um, part of it was through, through collecting data. Okay. Uh, you know, that was something that, um, you know, I brought to the table in terms of, you know, how do we, this was a four shift continuous operation. Mm-hmm. You know, how do we, number one, get the output we were looking for and, Number two, how do we improve on it? So, you know, I'd say that was the first thing I did was bring performance metrics to this operation. Okay. Um, at a very discreet level, mm-hmm. uh, machine to machine and operator to operator. Okay. And then really using that to focus in on uh, problem machines and problem products to say, okay, hey, you know, we have an opportunity to figure this out mm-hmm. and let's work on it and figure it out. So, you know, part of it is, I'll say, my natural curiosity. Mm-hmm. And the other part is using the data to help solve the problem. Um, you know, and, and that's something, you know, going from, uh, you know, toilet company number one to toilet <laughs> company number two is, uh, you know, is something I brought with me is a very, um, I'll say analytical yet practical approach of, you know, working with the data and then you know, working with the people who actually made the products to figure it out. Okay. I'm starting to see some uh, seeds here that might've grown into your current specialization. We'll get there. Um, did you experience maybe what we could call political pushback as you're doing this? One of the things I know is that, uh, the people who are being measured don't always like being measured <laughs> because all of a sudden they become more accountable than they were before. Anything like that, you know, that you had to navigate? Yeah, a, a little bit, um, you know, because when there's four teams and and three are neck and neck and the fourth is kind of riding the bottom of the chart, it's, it's you know, part of it comes down to approach and saying, hey, you know, here's what the metrics tell us, almost holding it at arm's length. And, you know, what can we do to close the gap? Mm-hmm. So there was definitely um, an aspect of that. And then really, you know, towards the end of, of the, the, the second engagement with the, uh, with the competitor, it was, you know, we had gotten the process to the point where, um, where it was, it was, definable, predictable, repeatable. It was consistent and it was smooth. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's, you know, looking back in hindsight, where I first learned that I don't like to maintain. Okay. Um, you know, there, there are, the way I describe it is there are people who like to keep the car between the guide rails and keep everything, you know, steady eddy. Yeah. And I'm not that guy. I'm the guy you call when your car's in the ditch. And <laughs> I like fixing fixing things. And, you know, at that point I fix it, get a process and I want to hand it off. Okay. Um, and at that, that second company, they said, ah, you know, we need you to maintain. And I said, eh. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go do something else. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's what put me, you know, I'll say the, uh, the first fork in the road and, you know, the shift from toilets to diamonds. Interesting. Okay. So as a part of 
cultivating this expertise, uh, like what kind of resources did you have to pull on? So you did, you did data collection and I'm curious if there's other, uh, maybe seemingly insignificant parts of what, what you assembled together to create this improvement. Uh, it, it was developing relationships with the people who worked in the process and okay. then uh, the people who worked on the process. So it, it was, it was, part of it was roll up my sleeves and get dirty. And mm-hmm. then the other part was um, working with the people who designed the products to try and build in, uh, build in improvement. So it was really a combination of in and on uh, that I, I guess I was fortunate to learn early on and have, uh, have carried with me since. Is it, um, was it something you had to sell? Um, meaning, did you have to build a case for this is why we want to do this? This is why I want to spend part of my my time on this? Or, you know, once you had made a case, did you have to sort of sell anybody on the idea of change? Uh, initially, to get the resources I needed, I had to sell it. I had to say, okay, if we're running at a first pass yield of 63%, you know, every 5% an improvement is worth this much in output. Okay. So in the beginning, it very much was um, the making the case for change, making the case of, hey, this is the value that we'll create if we can get the resources to fix it. Interesting. So in in that, maybe just that company, but in that manufacturing environment, what uh, what 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 you know gets people's attention about selling that kind of change? Is it just a simple cost savings argument or, uh, you know, a production output argument or what are you yeah, relying that, on? No, that's a great question, Philip. At that point, it was, it was all about throughput. Okay. Uh, you know, this is back in early 2000s. Okay. And um, at that point, you know, home building was going full speed ahead mm-hmm. and um, this company had a backlog. You know, they had a three to four month backlog on their products. So, every single piece that they could churn out, they could sell. So at that point, it was really about um, getting the throughput through the system to, um, you know, put in home builders and customers' hands. As perhaps you have um, seen over time, you know, the sort of fortunes of uh, home building or other drivers of manufacturing, uh, you know, rise and fall, did you see those motivations change on the business side of things where maybe it changed to a cost saving motivation somewhere around 2008. Yeah. Yeah. By by that time I was out of the toilet business and, and through the diamond business and into the tire business. But yes, you know, it's, it's something where, um, you know, responding to the market and, and, how quickly or slowly you respond to changes in the marketplace can either put you at a tremendous advantage or a huge disadvantage. Um, You know, if the market turns down and the business is still running full speed ahead, that business is going to hit a wall and Mm -hmm. that wall, you know, is goes from, Hey, you know, we're going to cut back to overtime to, hey, we're not working five days anymore. We're working four days a week because mm-hmm. we don't have the orders. Right. So being able to respond to the market 
um, to be as, as, as deft and nimble as possible is one of the things I would say for virtually any manufacturer that will help them succeed or, or uh, hurt them. One other general question, and then I want to kind of get back to following your story to where you are today. How do, um, how do buying decisions get made in manufacturing companies based on what you've seen? And when, and when I say buying decisions, I mean specifically for services, for outside vendors, not, you know, investing in a new kiln to, um, you know, fire ceramics or whatever. It, it, it depends on how much pain the business is feeling. Okay. You know, the, the, I'll say the intensity of pain and the duration of pain, I think is what in many cases is the, the driving factor to make that decision to bring somebody in. So am I right in assuming the, the deeper the pain, the, the greater the willingness to work with outsiders? Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, how about things, uh, not small things like, um, you know, we need attempt to do data entry, but you know, bigger things that cro- maybe cross multiple departments. How did those decisions? Are they like decision by committee, or is there usually kind of a strong uh, leader who pushes the change through? Like, what does it look like from that perspective? I'd I'd say Philip. It depends on the size of the organization, okay, um, or the size of the business. You know, if it's um, you know a smaller business or or, or more tightly knit operating team, I think those decisions get made faster uh-huh. because more people are likely to feel the pain. Yeah. Um, in a larger organization, uh, you know, let's say a corporation, it may be pain that's specific to a silo mm-hmm. and getting people across the different functional silos to understand what's in it for them mm-hmm. um, typically takes more time. Okay. So if you, I mean, I assume you are selling your services to manufacturing businesses. What kind of sales cycle are you prepared for in that? Are we talking a few months, a few years, somewhere in between? Um, it ranges. I would say typically, let's say the, the by way of reality, mm-hmm. the shortest sales cycle I've ever had was two weeks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the longest sales cycle is between three and four months. Okay. That's not that long. I, I was ex- I was expecting you to say, you know, something measured in years, not months, for the for the long side of things. That's encouraging. Yeah. It, well, I've been I've been on my own for about two and a half years, so okay. um, you know, I, I have a I'll say a limited pool of experience to uh, to make that conclusion on. Sure. Well, more than me though, in, when it comes to manufacturing. Okay. Um, wonderful. So back to the, uh, the diamond manufacturing company, uh, like what happened next? Like how did your career kind of wind its way from there to where you are now? So, um, making diamond with GE, I came in as a six Sigma black belt, um, focused on process improvement and continuous improvement. And, um, the culture of that business was very much one of, you know, figure out how to make things better and okay. figure out how to make things better and opportunities will present themselves. Um, and for me, that was exciting because, you know, when I had interviewed one of the people I had interviewed with and then went on to become friends with said, 
you never have to worry about your next job. As long as you do well and you deliver, that next job will present itself. So just take care of what you need to take care of today, Mm -hmm. and the future will take care of itself. Like your next job anywhere or your next job at GE? Uh, Next job at GE. Okay, got it. And, you know, in over the course of six years, I had four different roles inside the business Mm -hmm. um, between uh, continuous improvement, operations, uh, customer service, global customer service. And it just, you know, as I learned the business and learned how to communicate across the business and continue to deliver, um, the opportunities really presented themselves. Interesting. I mean, for someone who has never, like maybe literally never worked in a corporation that big, what is it like? Very much um, results driven. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things I learned, um, learned working with GE is it's, it's good to ask for help. Um, It was very, I was very fortunate in that, um, you know, the team I was working with was, it was a very collaborative environment Mm -hmm. because we all had the same goal. We all wanted the business to do well. And, um, you know, I, I really, got a lot of um, you know, good developmental and growth experiences there. Did, were you ever on the buying end of acquiring services or involved in the decision-making? Uh, at that time, I would say I was involved in the decision-making, but was not the one doing the buying itself. Okay. So, so you had a, you had a re- reasonably um, close seat. You weren't in the cheap seats when it comes to that. So, what advice would you give, um, you know, a sort of independent uh, provider of some kind of service who's trying to sell into that kind of environment? Uh, understand what the customer's needs are. Mm-hmm. Understand what the pains are and the solutions you can provide to help make those pains go away. Okay. Okay. So nothing, I, I mean, again, not not to come across the wrong way, but like nothing fancy, right? Just No, nothing fancy. Yeah. Okay, so it's not that different than selling to any other kind of business. <laughs> no. Okay, so um, you are you, you've been you know on your own selling services for two years. What made you decide to do that crazy thing of working for yourself, um, Philip? I fell into it. Okay, um, nice. Me too. I had uh, I had been the uh, the VP of operations for. A, uh, a family held company, uh, one which was uh, suffering from the oil and gas industry. Okay. And it got to the point where uh, the CEO said, if it's a choice between keeping my VP of sales or my VP of operations, I'm keeping my VP of sales. I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and I proceeded to uh, you know, reach out to my network and, you know, in the span of 60 days, you know, between breakfast, lunches and coffees, I met with probably 75 or 80 people. Okay. And um, one of the conversations I had uh, was a CFO of a uh, middle market company. Uh-huh. And he said, hey, we've used this, this particular firm before and let me make an introduction. Okay. And, um, 
you know, I, I approach that call as talking to somebody who sees 25 or 30 different manufacturing businesses a year. And, you know, maybe they could help me find my next VP of operations job. Mm -hmm. So it was very, my initial intent was, Hey, I want to go find another VP of ops job. Okay. And, um, had a conversation with one of the directors of, of this consulting business and we just clicked and, you know, he said, Hey, I've got a project in St. Louis. It's right in your wheelhouse. Are you interested in working a project? Mm -hmm. And me being the practical sort, I said, yes, cash is good. <laughs> and, um, I worked one project and one turned into two and two turned into three. And I was having fun. I was having a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Just, seeing all different types of businesses and working with all different kinds of people. And, and it was, it was refreshing. It was brand new. Yeah. And, um, with the third engagement, the, the firm had, had given me visibility to the billing. They billed the client a flat fee. Uh -huh. uh, I got about 20%. The other guy on the ground got about 20% and the house took 60. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there, uh, you know, after a week away with my wife and you know, I'm explaining it to her and, and she goes, she looks at me and she says, wouldn't it be better to get the 80 instead of the 20? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, dear, this is why I married you. I said, yes, you're right. <laughs> so, so I said, I can do this. All right. I can do this. And, you know, in the beginning it was figuring out, it was figuring out what I was going to what I was going to do, um, you know, in, in what ways could I offer my services? Okay. And, and that's really, you know, where, um, I say, uh, I'll say I had the first interaction with the, with the idea of specialization. So let's drill into that a bit. Um, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in your, your shoes here and you've got this, um, this background that has some breadth to it, like you've worked with lots of different types of companies, right? And some some real depth as well. So, what were what was what were you thinking at that time? Not like what were you thinking, man? But um, <laughs> you know, what was going through your head in terms of like um, making that decision of how to talk about what it is you do? So up until that point, Philip, you know, when people ask me what I did, I, I would say, you know, the common thread throughout my career has been continuous improvement. It's okay. figuring out how to make stuff better. Okay. Um, the challenge with that is it's like a big puffy cloud. There's nothing to hold on to. Right. And I said, okay, I need to, I need to narrow it down a little bit and okay. I'm a supply chain and operator guy. It's still kind of cloudy. Mm -hmm. And then I thought about sales and operations planning. Uh, spent the last six years across you know, three different businesses working on sales and operations planning. Okay. And you know, it's a process where you connect the dots between sales and operations and manufacturing and finance. And I said, okay, that's a little bit better, but you know, the challenge is it's a 12 month implementation and it may take me 12 months to sell a project at which point I'm starving. So right. yeah. I said, I, that that's not going to work. And, and what I did was I literally printed out years of resumes in five year buckets 
And I started looking for other themes besides continuous improvement mm-hmm. and looking through my resume, American standard inventory, Kohler inventory, GE inventory, Goodyear inventory, Carlisle inventory, all these businesses I had worked for, whether it was because there was a problem or nobody else had touched it, I had always worked on inventory. And, and that was the light that went off in my head to say it's inventory, right? Inventory is a tip of the iceberg that can lead in 10 different directions, but it's, it's, it's something tactile. It's something people can hold on to. So that's how I chose my niche of inventory optimization. Oh, that's so interesting. So let me see if I'm getting this right, Michael. So you, you kind of took a first pass at your, your corpus of experience and you were looking for, you know, where's the head start? Where's the obvious um, strength that I am working from? And that looked like operations or planning. And that's, you know, for various reasons that was a no-go. And then you, you, I'm trying to figure out what, what did you do next? You, you said you printed out some resumes. I'm, I'm wanting this obsessive level of detail about how exactly you got to that next insight that yeah. it's inventory, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was it, looking at the idea of continuous improvement. You know, it's been my experience that half the population you talk about it and their eyes glaze over, and then <laughs> the other the other half are you know their eyes light up, and I'm like, okay, eh, you know, batting fifty fifty, yeah, that's not good enough. Yeah. So I I, I literally you know because I don't know if it's because I'm an engineer. Or because I like data, I I went and said, okay, here's my resume from you know 1995 to 2000 okay. and 2005 and five to ten and ten to fifteen, and I started looking at the the bullet points, the things that I had quantified over the last twenty years, mm-hmm. and and inventory just popped up again and again and again, and and the nice thing. Um, is all those were very quantifiable, very measurable that I could, I could hang a story onto. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, that's where that, that, that light bulb went off for me. And, you know, it, it wasn't uh, print out the resume, sit there for 20 minutes and it just jumped out at me. I mean, this was something that, that, you know, evolved over a period of, of days and weeks to have all these pieces of the puzzle come together and crystallize. That's fascinating. So <clears throat> you see this, um, this opportunity to talk about yourself at, as a, you know, through the lens of inventory expertise in that area. The first time you, or, you know, those, those first few times you started putting that in front of people was, was the reaction you got different or observably different uh, that's a really good question. I mean, I had started out, out you know, with my first um, engagement. It started out as a as a diagnostic, and the diagnostic turned into a two week engagement, and um, that two week engagement turned into an eight month project. So, mm-hmm. in in I, I'll, in hindsight, I'll definitely say it was a curse and a blessing landing a whale right out of the gate. <laughs> yeah. Um, because it didn't force me to think about what comes next. It, right. It was focused on kind of 
defining milestones and hitting the deliverables um, until I got to the point where that engagement ended. And I said, oh, wow, I, <laughs> I have no pipeline. I'm, I'm going to uh, jump in so and focused say, on execution. Yeah, I've been in the exact same situation. And I, I, I'm starting to think that these whale clients have, like, they can bend light and create this optical illusion. Like, there's no horizon beyond this project, right? This will never end. It'll always be like this is what it feels like when you're in it. And it's just the most natural thing in the world to th thereby ignore the future, ignore that pipeline. Yes. Yeah, it definitely was, was, was a light bending exercise in that. <laughs> um, it was, and it was funny because I could see, you know, okay, we're, we're meeting all the deliverables. The, the client has the inventory they need for their start of their peak season. And, you know, when the engagement wrapped, I mean, it wasn't any surprise. It came to the natural conclusion. Mm -hmm. And that's when I took a breath and said, Oh wow. <laughs> I need I need to go out and 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 talk to some people and figure out how um you know in what ways I could get my message out there in a way that would be meaningful and and resonate uh for the target market that I had identified. So, what did that look like? Cuz it it sounds like you got a little bit of, you know, a mixed blessing of uh, maybe about a year that you didn't have to think about it, but then you did. So what did it look like those, those first few times you're trying to put a, a specific concrete message in front of people? Um, I kind of fumbled around a little bit mm -hmm. and then um, I would say I was smart enough to know I didn't know how to do it. And I asked for help. Okay. And, um, I got a, I got a, uh, I was able to find a, a, a person to help coach me a little bit on marketing. Okay. And those were really the, um, you know, the initial step. So it was things like, you know, my logo used to say people process systems under it, which okay. sounds in my mind, it sounded wonderful. Right. <laughs> um, the reality, is it could be, you know, I could be talking about, HVAC or, or, you know, trash collection, right? It's right. people process systems. It didn't mean anything. Yeah. So that was my first aha moment with my, my marketing coach to say, listen, you do inventory optimization. You need to put it out there in black and white that you do inventory optimization. I said, Oh, okay. <laughs> that makes sense. Right. And, um, it, and, and it was, it was developing, uh, you know, it was developing a case study with very concrete, you know, pain, very mm -hmm. concrete solutions and very concrete deliverable mm -hmm. um, that they helped me, that they helped me work through. That's great. So when did you see that those sorts of changes start to uh, produce a different outcome in terms of um, business development generally? Uh, being able to speak, I'll say <laughs> coherently about what I do. Yeah. Um, definitely the, the, the first place it helped me with Philip was introductions. Okay. Um, I've been blessed with, with a great network. And, you know, one of the things I found in the beginning when my message was fuzzy was I got a, a lot of bad introductions. Okay. Um, 
the people making the introductions meant well. Right. Um, and, and what I realized from that was I need to do a better job describing myself so other people can in turn describe me and making these introductions and making these connections. So, so for me, that, that, that process of continuous improvement and refining my message is what has helped me, you know, get better introductions and, and, you know, get in front of the people and organizations I want to get in front of. I'm going to, let's, let's drill in a little more here. So was that something where, you know, you just like change a LinkedIn profile heading and, and the rest happens passively or, did you take some some action to kind of get the word out of like, okay, people, <laughs> I love you, you love me. Oh, I, no, that, this this is who I am now. Question. Yeah, that, that it was very much um, an active process. Okay, of letting you know, yeah, part of it was definitely updating the LinkedIn profile, but sure. that's that's passive. Yeah, um, I had developed uh, what I call a network update note. Okay. A dear friend of mine turned me on to the idea and said, you know, it's one thing to, you know, sit down for a cup of coffee or have a conversation once with somebody. It's a relationship that you have to build and you have to nurture. So what I would do was in the beginning, it was about every three months, mm-hmm. I would send a note out to about 300 people mm-hmm. saying, hey, here's what I'm working on. Here's what I've learned. Um, here's what I'm seeing. You know, and and actively communicating out to people, hey, here's what I'm working on. Mm-hmm. Kind of the idea of I need, I need to let people know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, if I wanted to generate business, and you know, that was I'll say the first step was was putting information out, um, and that was all via email to the okay. network. Okay. And then um, recently, about six weeks ago, I had. Um, two different people on two different days tell me that I needed to start making some videos and, and putting myself out, out there. Okay. And, um, you know, one of them was Anthony English, who mm-hmm. I know is, has been a guest on your show. And, yeah. and Anthony asked me the, the, the very clear question of, do you expect to win an Oscar? And I said, <laughs> no, <laughs> I, said, I, said, I just hope I don't end up on somebody's highlight reel. And he goes, then what are you worried about? Do it. And, um, and I did. Oh, that's and great. And that, uh, I, I've been very, very happy with the response. Yeah. And that's something that's definitely helped create a lot of new conversations um, with people that I would have not been exposed to otherwise. That's incredible. Okay. So you started, uh, started small, started humble, three, you know, every three months or so an update. Here's what I'm up to. Here's what I've learned. Um, and, and those already started generating conversations, right? Yes. So what's your approach with, um, with the videos that you're creating? Is it a sort of similar thing of like, here's something I've learned that might be useful to you or what kind of approach are you taking there? Um, the approach that I'm taking is in breaking down the concept of inventory and the things that contribute to it. So okay. one of the conversations I had with Anthony was, you know, pick a topic and break it down, okay. and break it down into, into smaller pieces. Right. And I said, okay, well, when I think about inventory, 
you know, the umbrella over inventory is the concept of having a plan. So that's video number one. Mm-hmm. And video number two was the sales plan. And then three was the build plan. Four was the buy plan. And five was the culmination and bringing it all together in the inventory plan. So mm-hmm. um, you know, once a week, I would sit down and record a video and, and put it out there. And then as a follow-up, I'll say offset to the videos is once every two weeks, I'm now starting with the first video in the series, sending them out to the network to say, hey, you know, here's the value of having a plan. Let's, mm-hmm. you know, today we're going to talk about the sales plan or we're going to talk about the build plan. Mm-hmm. Um, really in the, in the spirit of sharing what I've learned with my network to say, hey, if you want to make things better, here's some, here's some different things that you can try. That's great. Yeah, you know, uh, video and audio, anything that it sort of it conveys your image or your voice to people can be so uh, effective and trust building, I think. Is that what you're seeing as well? Or what are you seeing in terms of the kind of feedback it, about these? Yeah, it, it is, Philip. I mean, the, the first person who suggested I make a video said, um, He's, he speaks very bluntly. He says, you're an engineer with a personality. Yes, you, <laughs> yes, you could write an email, yeah. but you need to show people what you look like and sound like and feel like right. t- to give them a sense of you know, who they would be working with. Right. So that was, that was for me, you know, one of the things that, that got me to that point to say, hey, yeah, I'm perfectly comfortable talking with the CEO as, as the mechanic on the floor, mm-hmm. and I need to let people see that and feel that. Mm-hmm. That's great. So, um, so it's, it sounds like I've sort of caught you at this moment where you've got this specialized focus, and you're you're in the sort of early days of spinning up. Um, let's call it a marketing machine. <laughs> You know, but uh, just undertaking some very simple activities, but effective ones to start to connect and build trust with prospective clients. Is, is that about right? Is that kind of where things are in, in the life cycle of, of your business? Yeah, very much so. Yes. Okay. Okay. So as you know, as you look out over the next uh, six or 12 months, what will you be doing um, aside from, you know, delighting clients? <laughs> what else will you be doing with your business? For me, the my approach is one where um, it's one of diagnose and then prescribe. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my initial engagement with a client is, is a diagnostic, and and the idea with the diagnostic is to quantify the value of the opportunities that okay. I've discovered. Right. And what I would like to do is build a pipeline to where I've got. Uh, you know, a diagnostic a month lined up for right. four, five, six months. Mm-hmm. And then if I can get a quarter of those to convert, then I am absolutely full, book right. solid. Right. And, you know, it, it would be at that point where I would say, okay, I'm going to bring somebody on and, you know, have somebody help me, you know, either execute the, um, the diagnostic or execute a portion of the engagement. Right. 
How and, do you how do you find somebody like that? I'm I'm curious, you know, from the sort of uh, recruiting or hiring perspective, how do you find that kind of person? Um, there's a couple people in my network that I've built up relationships with, mm-hmm. uh, you know, over the years. So it's, you know, for me, it's understanding, um, you know, a combination of, of talent and desire to do something different. So yeah. when I get to that point of saying, Hey, you know, I need to bring somebody on, um, it'll be, you know, planting the seeds for that ahead of time. So when I'm ready, there's somebody ready to, to come on with me. Hmm. That's great. Okay. Well, sounds like I need to circle back in uh, six months or so and have you, have you on the show again to, to hear how things are going? Uh, I, I would, I welcome this opportunity and I very much would welcome a, a six month check-in Philip. That would be fantastic. <laughs> That's great. So you said you said your kids are going to uh, listen to this at some point. What what do they not know about you that would uh, just blow their minds? Ah, oh, that's a great question. That's that's my wild card question before we wrap it up today. <laughs> that, that's a great question. I I think I think part of it would be in understanding, you know, the combination of work with my head and work with my hands uh-huh. in that it's, I'm not behind a computer all day and I'm not on a shop floor all day. It's, it's understanding what I need to do and where I need to be to get things done uh-huh. that, um, um, I think they would be surprised to learn that it's not a, uh, an either, or it's not all computer or all shop floor. It's, it's a mix depending on what needs, uh, what needs delivered. Uh, what's, what song did you love in your youth that they would be mortified to know that you listen to? Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, I'm really, really digging here for that, something that's going to horrify them. <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, I, I, we've been, my wife and I have been blessed with four fantastic kids and, my wife and I have very different tastes in music, so my kids have heard all my, all my my heavy metal and hard rock. That's, <laughs> that's a good question. All right, well, uh, uh, we'll we'll table that one. Uh, come back okay. to it in, in six yeah, months. Yeah, I'll or be so. ready six months from now to answer that question <laughs> for you, Philip. Michael, thank you so much for being here. It was just so generous of you to uh, respond to all my nosy questions about how you develop this expertise and how you're, you're sharing it with the market now. Uh, so thank you for that. And I wonder if you could let folks know if they wanted to reach out to you with questions or find out something more or uh, perchance hire you, what would you recommend? Thank you, Philip. And, and thank you for, for the opportunity to come on your show and, and, and share my journey to, uh, to learn more about me uh, being the creative engineer. I am, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, my website is simply mryangroup.com. Okay. And um, you know, the, on LinkedIn, you can find me uh, with I Solve Problems is my, my LinkedIn handle. Nice. And, uh, you know, on my website, I talk about uh, the different diagnostics, the approach, the deliverables. And uh, I also have the videos that I've published on the website as well. And 
Now, if somebody would like to reach out to me again, being the creative engineer, it's Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L at mryangroup.com. I, I welcome, uh, I welcome uh, all emails, all questions, and, and I look forward to, uh, to getting a conversation started.